Lifelong learning drives learning businesses. Taking the time to consider what lifelong learning is and what it can be is an illuminating exercise in better understanding why your learning business does what it does and the broad human goals that it supports. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. At Leading Learning, we're all about supporting the learning businesses and learning business professionals that create and support adult lifelong learning. But lifelong learning can be an ambiguous term. Well, in fact, lifelong learning may be even more than ambiguous. We might even call it polysemous, uh, ambiguous, deriving from the Latin ambi, meaning both, which suggests two. But there are more than two takes on what lifelong learning is. I'm not convinced we're going to sell folks on the idea of using the the term polysemous, maybe. I don't know. Uh, ambidextrous might go over better, but uh, but I, I know that's uh, sort of you're your leaning to, to go into language like that. Well, yeah, we are. We're talking about the meaning of words, and so it seemed legitimate to me to make this point. And language and etymology are also things that I enjoy studying as part of my own lifelong learning. Well, to each your own, I suppose. But it is interesting that uh, because, you know, even in that comment about what you enjoy studying and calling that lifelong learning, we start to get into some of those differing opinions about what lifelong learning is or should be and why it is, in fact, polysemous, as you say. <laughs> That's right. So let's talk about some of those differing opinions and their origins. So we'll do a little bit of history. We're going to focus primarily on the history of lifelong learning in Europe and the U.S., and we're going to focus primarily on the 20th and 21st century. So just sort of, you know, be forewarned that that's kind of where we're focusing. I think it could be interesting at some point to go beyond Europe and the U.S. I have to say my own knowledge there is very sketchy, so that, that we need to fill in that knowledge at some point and, and make it part of the podcast. Um, but yeah, as you say, Europe and U.S. right now, I'd also love to go back uh, pre-20th century too, to, to see, you know, in all those ages of enlightenment and the Greeks and everything else, how was this thought of, uh, this whole idea of lifelong learning? What was it called then? But back, back to where we are today. That's right. For today, we're going to sort of impose these artificial limits. And I have in mind kind of three major lifelong learning paradigms that are still around and still guiding um, thinking. And these were developed by three groups, three European groups, the Council of Europe, UNESCO and the OECD. So UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization that was founded in 1945. And it has an aim to promote world peace and security through international cooperation in education, arts, sciences and culture. And then OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's another intergovernmental organization. It has 38 member countries. And that was founded a little bit later in 1961. And the goal there was to stimulate economic progress and world trade. And then the Council of Europe is another international organization that also came uh, about in the wake of World War II. It was founded in 1949. It has 46 member states. And it's really focused on trying to uphold human rights, democracy, and the rule 
of law in Europe. So we have these three organizations and all three of them were pushing for some form of lifelong learning. And this was kind of in the 1960s and 1970s when they really sort of made this push. And I'll say, as you noted, these are primarily associated with, with Europe, these organizations, though though obviously the United States is also involved in the United Nations um, to at least some degree. I don't actually know the ins and outs of how involved the United States is in UNESCO, but I'm going to make the assumption that uh, hopefully we've had at least some involvement there. But I do note that you know most of what I see coming out of UNESCO or OECD or the Council of Europe seems to be paid attention to more by European countries at this point than by, by the United States. And so if we look at what those three groups were sort of writing about and, and proposing and, and arguing for in the 1960s and 70s, we have a few different terms that were being used. So the Council of Europe was really focused on this idea of of permanent education. That's what they wanted to call it. So again, you know, permanent sort of instead of lifelong learning, but it's this idea of you need to kind of keep educating yourself. The OECD was focused on a term called recurrent education. And their idea there was that we tend to kind of chunk um, education into this sort of full-time learning and then kind of full-time work. And they thought it would be better to sort of mix it up. And so maybe you have kind of full-time study, and then you might go to work for full-time and then kind of have a sabbatical leave to go back to to, to studying for a, a, a little bit there. And then UNESCO, there was a really important report that came out in 1972 called Learning to Be. And it's also called the Four Report. Um, that's because uh, Edgar Four was the chairperson of UNESCO's International Commission on the Development of Education. At the time when that report came out, he was a key figure in developing that report. And it used the term lifelong education. So we get lifelong, we don't quite get to learning. It's still this focus on education. But the idea that what there was that, you know, lifelong education could really be transformative and emancipatory. That's a tough word. It's (laughs) It's a tough tough word. word. It's right up there with polysemous in terms of pronunciation. It's probably a polysemous word. (laughs) Um, You know, and one commentator uh, around the time that that learning to be report came out called the UNESCO concept a Copernican revolution in education. That caught my eye when I read that tidbit. It is eye-catching. I'm, I'm not sure it's quite turned out that way, but um, but this report has had a, a lot of influence. I know uh, at least three comments there, I, I think. One is, I love that there was a prime minister involved in, in all of this, somebody at that level of government. Uh, you would love to see that across all nations. Yeah, he wasn't prime minister. Four was not prime minister at the time. Not this at the, rep- time, right. the time, but he had been right, and so yeah. he very clearly right. He's this politician, really focused on education, and then yeah, thinking through sort of the policy and the the what needed to be in place to actually change education and make it better. Right, and I won't name names, but I can think of certain ex presidents in the United States who would be involved in something like this, and others who probably would not be as involved in in, in something like this. But uh, yeah, having that level of involvement is nice. And then I, I liked the terminology, you know, recurrent education, permanent education. I mean, even the, and then even the title of the report, Learning to Be, even though, you know, these necessarily become sort of commonplace in, in how we talk about it, 
I mean, they do echo a lot of, or they don't echo what we're doing now echoes them and that we're starting to really think of learning as this just continuous activity. I mean, these days, you know, we talk about things like the other 50 years, you hear terms like the 60 year curriculum, all of these are really more aimed at sort of adult learners or higher education through the rest of life. We'll talk about, you know, what we really need, mean by the full span of lifelong learning here. But, you know, some of the language that was being used at that point, I think has been very influential over time, um, the involvement of high level people in it. And then I think we will get to this sort of division between uh, education and, and learning and, and sort of how we, how we treat those terms at, at some point in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think what we see in the history is that we have various groups sort of promoting or, or emphasizing some aspects more than others. And I'm, I'm thinking it's probably not just like an either or, it's not a A versus B, it's probably more of a spectrum. And so you have sort of idealistic on one end of a spectrum and maybe pragmatic on the other. So we have this idealistic, this idea of let's create better societies, right? Let's create better international cooperation and, and learning is one way to do it. And then you have much more pragmatic concerns around how to how can we deal with workplace skills gaps issues, you know, to use kind of modern day, uh, mm -hmm. you know, contemporary um, talk that's going on. So that's kind of one spectrum. And then, you know, we often see, I think this particularly tends to be the case in the European context, or I, I feel like it's more the case in the European context, a characterization of a lot of lifelong learning or lifelong learning education, having sort of a, a remedial focus Whereas I think in the U.S., particularly where continuing education and professional development have such an emphasis, it's really more about advancing careers. So that remedial versus, you know, advancing careers kind of dichotomy that we often see. And then there's, of course, the formal versus informal spectrum in there. You know, we have education and what it brings to mind around, you know, perhaps collegiate degrees or, um, you know, certifications, uh, that type of thing to the more informal where, you know, what might you learn through a mentorship or through doing something on the job or just through a conversation with someone. And it's encouraging, I think, that we've seen much more attention to the concept of informal learning over, uh, you know, the past two to three decades. I think of the work of people like Jay Cross and writing about informal learning and many of his colleagues, that that is starting to become something that's getting a lot more attention. I still think it doesn't tend to get talked about or contextualized as lifelong learning um, per se. It's kind of a different take on, say, workplace learning in, in most instances when informal learning is being talked about, but at least it is being talked about and in some cases action is being, being taken around it. Another spectrum that we might point to is a spectrum that has maybe sort of societal benefits on one end and, and kind of more personal benefits or personal gains on the other. So again, I think this kind of harkens back to this idea of, of how can we advance democracy or how can we, um, you know, create good citizens, that sort of being on the societal end. And then on the more personal gains, you know, that can be career advancement, as we sort of talked about. But again, sort of like, why? Who is the learning for? Who does the learning benefit? And there's sort of for the individual learner benefits, and then there's for society at large benefits. And you kind of have different groups focusing on different ends of that spectrum. Right. And this is another, uh, again, these are my perceptions. So I, I don't, I can't say these are grounded in, in actual data, but, you know, I, I hear or see terms like the learning society 
used much more in a European context than I tend to see it used in a U.S. context with the idea that, that learning is a driver of social progress, that we need to be thinking about how learning is integrated into, woven into society to improve society. But, you know, you think back to the efforts that do come from the U.S., uh, something like Dewey on democracy and education and, you know, the, the fundamental role education plays in society, that is obviously Im embedded in so many ways now in how we think about and, and pursue education in, in the United States. And I think that also has infiltrated um, Europe as well. What I think related to this is something I've heard you say before, you know, that we, we kind of learning starts as a social good, right? We sort of send all of our, our kids off to school and we sort of believe that that's a social good. And then we tend to sort of, as the learner ages, it becomes almost more of this uh, economic commodity, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is it that you're going to do with what you learn? Um, and I think we're seeing this in the current attack on, on liberal arts um, and this idea of like, oh, well, you, you know, that philosophy degree isn't going to help you on the job, which may or may not be true. I think there's a pretty strong argument that maybe it does help you on the job, but there's much more of an emphasis on what can we do that are actually going to give you workplace skills. Yeah, you know, and I just, you know, referenced Dewey. I mean, even when he was talking about democracy and education, he really was focused on early life, um, the, you know, the child, K through 12, into higher education as we would sort of make those divisions. Now, um, you know, it needs to extend beyond that. And I mean, in some ways that's a tension in our work because we're very focused on this idea of the learning business. And there is the business side of that, which most of the organizations we're dealing with do have to sell what they're creating. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that what they sell needs to be treated as a commodity. It should not be treated as a commodity. I think there is still this aspect of what you're doing and continue education and professional development being a, a, a social good and, and taking that learning side of the equation and, and learning business as seriously, if not more seriously than the, the business um, side of it. But, you know, once learning slash education becomes a business, as it typically is in the adult world, you know, in, for children and up through higher education, there's so much government funding across the U.S. and, and Europe or around that. But once you get into the adult world, very often, you know, either the individual or the employer is having to pay for that. So there is this you know, commerce aspect to it that I think we need to be conscious of and, and, and be careful with. And most of the organizations that we work with, they do have that revenue imperative, but they also tend to have a mission focus as right. well. Whether or That's not they're true. organized as a nonprofit or not, they tend to actually buy into the fact that what they're doing by educating and helping individuals learn actually will improve those individuals and then in turn, those individuals will help improve society. Yeah, and really, ideally, that mission aspect should be there, regardless of whether you're, you know, organized as a nonprofit or not. I think if you're in the training and education business and and, and serving that sector, to have as part of how you operate, how you define your operations, that mission to be providing a essentially social good to the the field, the sector, the industry that you are serving, and to society more broadly as an extension of that. As someone who listens to the Leading Learning Podcast, you should know about the Leading Learning Newsletter, which you can subscribe to at leadinglearning.com slash inbox. The newsletter is inbox intelligence for learning businesses and helps you understand the latest technology, marketing, and learning trends and grow your learning business. Best of all, it's a free resource. 
As a subscriber, you get leading links, our monthly curated collection of resources to help you grow the reach, revenue, and impact of your learning business, the Podcast Digest, a monthly summary of podcast episodes released during the previous month, plus periodic announcements highlighting leading learning webinars and other educational opportunities designed to benefit learning business professionals. Subscribe for free at leadinglearning.com inbox. And if you're already subscribed, point a colleague to leadinglearning.com inbox. So there's a lot of disagreement or at least discussion around what lifelong learning is and where it should focus all those different spectrums we were talking about and kind of where along them you fall. But what we can say if we just look at the term itself is that we can say lifelong learning is lifelong and it involves learning. So maybe let's just sort of unpack those two terms a little bit. Yeah, so that, you know, that lifelong aspect, I mean, we heard hints of that in permanent learning and recurrent learning and uh, learning to be some of the reports and the organizations we were talking about uh, earlier, but it's a recognition that this is, this is cradle to grave. I mean, you, you start this process of, of lifelong at, at the beginning of life and you continue it to the end of life. And, you know, that's why when, when we talk about lifelong learning, we tend to be specific and say we focus on adults because that is that is one. I mean, it's it's a major. It's probably the most recognized area of lifelong learning. But really, you know, you're forming habits from the the minute you emerge into the world, and those those learning habits need to carry you through a lifetime. So, you know, establishing lifelong learning as a practice and a habit early in life um, is, is extremely important. So it starts early on, um, it continues through your education, and it even continues into retirement. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've spoken with Chris McLeod of the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at, at Duke University. So you have those ollies across the country. You have other organizations that really came about to serve retirees and help them continue to learn. Yeah. And, and you know, we were talking about kind of how to think about the term, definitions of the term earlier. I, I think for a lot of people, when they say lifelong learning, that's that's what they're talking about is this kind of late life learning where, you know, your time is freed up because you're now retired. You can pursue some interests that maybe you couldn't pursue before. I think it's kind of notable that it's at that point that a lot of people often turn back to the liberal arts, you know, which we were talking about earlier, don't tend to get the, the respect that they, <laughs> that they maybe did once upon a, a time. Be nice if people were just engaging with, you know, the liberal arts in one way or another throughout their careers. But, um, but you know, that is... That's only one aspect of the, the life journey. And, and by extension, it's only one aspect of lifelong learning. So lifelong, cradle to grave, our focus at leading learning and most of the organizations we work with is on adult lifelong learning. The other part of the term is learning, of course. And for us, learning and lifelong learning that's an umbrella term. And so that contains underneath it continuing education and professional development. Sometimes we list all three out in our, our, a series. We, you know, we say we focus on a, adult lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development. And that's because some people tend to think of them as different things. So for us, lifelong learning umbrella term, the other two, CE and PD, fall underneath it. Yeah, I think it's it's important to to recognize that it is that umbrella term. Um, and also that uh, learning and education are really well, I, I consider education to be a subset uh, of learning. It's a more structured 
more formalized uh, approach to learning. It's typically what you're going to do in a continuing education or professional development setting, something that is, you know, more formalized and structured. But, you know, human beings are are learning creatures. We're, we're engineered to learn, even if we make no effort at it whatsoever, you know, by the, by the time we're crawling around on the floor, we're learning, we're taking in sensations, we're processing information, it's changing our, our behaviors, our, our knowledge, obviously. Um, I mean, learning is just constant uh, process of change. And a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about lifelong learning is becoming more conscious and becoming more intentional about this native capacity that you have as a human being. And whether you're doing that informally or whether you're doing it formally in a continuing education and professional and development uh, type setting, the more that you you can kind of uh, refine those skills and become better and, and better as a learner, well, that in itself is a lifelong process uh, as well. You're kind of learning to learn throughout life. It would be hard to talk about lifelong learning without at least mentioning Malcolm Knowles. That's right. We're practically a a Malcolm Knowles fan club here, I think. (laughs) What I'm thinking in particular of The Adult Learner, which he published in 1973. So as we're recording, that's 50 years ago. Mm. And I learned something recently. I had not realized the subtitle to the adult learner. There's a subtitle. Did you know that, Jeff? I did not know that until I was reading your notes for this podcast, actually. So. <laughs> the subtitle is A Neglected Species. So the adult learner, colon, a neglected species. I found that fascinating. That subtitle has since been dropped. And I guess I guess I did know that that, that, that was a subtitle originally, though I always forget it, but I didn't know that it was no longer used uh, ah. with, the, uh, uh, with the book. I guess I just haven't been paying enough attention to my recent editions of the adult learner. Um, but, you know, probably that, that subtitle's been dropped, or I'm hopeful that maybe that subtitle has been dropped because adult learning is just much more widely recognized and appreciated than it was at the time that Knowles wrote that book. I mean, prior to Knowles, you know, you, you had people like Dewey and Piaget who were very much focused on what happens in childhood learning, um, pedagogy, you know, at at that point, but not so much focus on what's happening with adult learners. And of course, Knowles coins this whole new term, andragogy, to to talk about adult learning. Ah, see, etymology. We're back to etymology. There you go. It's all polysemous. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we have a lot of drivers for the new focus or renewed focus on, on lifelong learning that's kind of come about. You know, we are changing jobs, even changing careers more frequently. We're living longer. And as part of living longer, we're also working longer. We're seeing technology evolve and change at just an increasingly fast pace. And all of those are, of course, driving the need and desire for lifelong learning. And that, and that's having an impact. I, you know, we were saying earlier this idea of becoming more conscious and intentional about being a learner and about being a lifelong learner. And it appears that that is, in, in fact, happening. It's, or it seems to be. There was a great report uh, several years ago by the Pew Research Center that we actually did uh, a podcast around. And in that report, uh, they found that 73% of adults consider themselves to be lifelong learners. And then it's interesting, they also kind of divvied up, you know, what type of lifelong learner are you? So 74% of adults that they surveyed 
were what Pew calls personal learners, meaning that they had participated in at least one activity in the past year that would advance their knowledge about something that personally interests them. So, you know, my etymology and, you know, my interest in in languages. So that was one kind of category, personal learners, 74% of adults were personal learners. And then 63% of those who were working or 36% of all adults were what Pew termed professional learners, meaning they had taken a course or gotten training in the last year to help them improve job skills or expertise connected to whatever they do for a living to earn money. And that's the group, you know, that 36% of adults that really constitute the, the broader market for probably most of our listeners here who are in that continuing education, professional development, adult lifelong learning market. Though I think there's there's also probably a significant number of listeners who may be in that kind of personal learning space, helping to support that personal learning space. And I would say even those who are focused on the professional space might take note of that desire for personal learning and think about, are there ways that you could supplement, complement whatever you offer right now in terms of your catalog of experiences that offer some of those personal aspects, since we know the demand is out there for it. I'll also note that there is, uh, or there was, a 2017 Economist special report, and uh, we've done a blog post on this, which basically declared that lifelong learning is now an imperative. It was becoming. It was becoming. That was their title. That's right. That was becoming an imperative because our comment at the time was, "Really? I mean, we've we we felt like it had become an imperative well before that, and that there was plenty of evidence for it. But it was good to see a venerable old institution like the Economist magazine declare and particularly since they tend to be an international publication to, you know, spanning not just uh, Europe and the U.S., but the, the globe, for them to say this is, this is becoming an imperative, that really, in a way, puts lifelong learning on the map in a way that really probably hadn't been up until that point. Now, of course, that Economist report and the Pew report are, you know, pre-pandemic. They're a few years old. And so, you know, I, I think... Even more recently, we've seen that the lifelong learning, the the need for it and the options have grown, right? We had the pandemic that pushed so many organizations online, which created more online learning opportunities. There was work from home and people had need to build skills in areas that they didn't have before. And by working from home, maybe they had a little bit more freedom and flexibility to take advantage of some of the online learning that was out there. We had the great resignation, which of course sent people leaving one job and then looking for the next. And probably as part of that, also thinking through, okay, what skills or knowledge do I need to help me find a good new job down the road? Yeah, and I think it's interesting that in many ways, the sort of growth in um, awareness of and demand for lifelong learning has been consecutive with the growth of online learning and the ability to access more and more types of learning experiences than, than ever before. I mean, as we've already said, I mean, we're always learning all the time. That's always been the, the case that has not really changed about human beings. But suddenly there's just this massive new set of, of options that are out there for people. And, you know, they're both a product of 
um, and a driver for some of the, the change that we're talking about, the pace of change, the, the evolution of what's happening in the workspace. But uh, um, people are now, as you said, because of the, the pandemic, boy, I mean, that just kind of blew open the doors on if, if there was any doubt before that point that online learning was firmly established and that the lifelong learning really, particularly in terms of you know, adaptability, flexibility, that sort of um, more formal, conscious, intentional type of learning, that that has to take place, that that has to be an integrated part of people's lives. The, the pandemic just really kind of drove those two points home in, in a way that it's hard to imagine anything else really doing at, the, at that scale. So Jeff, we've taken a little detour through history. We've talked about some of these different areas of focus that different groups and individuals have brought to this concept of lifelong learning. But all this sort of begs the bigger question of why do we care? Why does this matter? Oh, does there have to be a reason? Can't we just, <laughs> it's, it's fun to take detours and talk about lifelong learning. Why not? But yeah, you're right. I mean, we, you know, why, why does this matter? Um, I think we probably have a relatively pragmatic audience listening to the podcast. And I mean, certainly a, a key reason for our listeners is simply that understanding your position and just that landscape uh, and your position in that landscape as a provider of adult lifelong learning is key to actually being the effective learning business that we're assuming you aim to be. I also think that there could be some fruitful discussion and reflection to come out of thinking back to these different sort of tugs on what the term should be, where the emphasis should be on lifelong learning and really as a learning business or as you yourself as an individual lifelong learner thinking through, okay, what do I think? Where do I feel like we should focus? Where where do we sort of land on these various spectrums? Yeah. And, and we've discussed before that, you know, there's probably a significant percentage of our audience that doesn't really embrace the term lifelong learning or, or, or recognize themselves as being in lifelong learning. For some reasons, there, there's this sort of strange bifurcation between lifelong learning and continuing education and professional development. And I've met plenty of people who will say they're in continuing education and professional development and do not think of themselves as being in lifelong learning. And I, I think it's worthwhile to, to to question that, to back up, say, why, you know, why is that? Um, and is there perhaps a, a benefit to our organization, a benefit to our learners, if we are actually thinking of ourselves as engaged in supporting and facilitating lifelong learning with continuing education and professional development being an approach to that, obviously, but it may open up other possibilities and other ways that you can impact the world that you're trying to serve. And I think no matter where you land individually or as a learning business in terms of what you think that focus for lifelong learning should be or where your focus is, I think no matter where you land, it's pretty clear to look out there and go, okay, the lifelong learning landscape is fragmented. Mm -hmm. You know, we have much more consolidated systems that serve those young learners. But by the time you kind of leave college in the U.S., how you go about learning is largely left up to you. Yeah. And, you know, we often talk about this um, third sector of education, which even that, I mean, that's narrower than sort of lifelong learning more broadly. Um, but even to talk about this sort of more formalized continuing education, professional development, adult education type sector, people don't tend to kind of put a label on that and think about that in the same way that they do K through 12 education or 
or higher education. And I think there's just a real opportunity to do that. And as part of doing that, to, to start to, to get rid of some of that fragmentation and get more of a sense of integration across these different sectors of education and more recognition that the, there is this umbrella of learning that arches over all of them. We talked about, you know, learning is a umbrella term at the, at the beginning of the podcast. We're back to it again. Um, and, uh, I, I think that's just a, a very important sort of shift in, in perspective that we need going forward. There's the benefit of recognizing the umbrella. I think there's also a benefit in helping learners make sense of the fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we all know that we have limited time and energy. And so as a learner, if I'm having to spend all of my time even figuring out which options or what it is I need to learn or, or where to go to learn that that can eat into the time that I actually have to focus on learning any new information or skill or, or knowledge. And so if you can be that guide, if you can help make sense of the fragmentation, make a clear path (laughs) through this fragmented market, that's going to help your learning business stand out. It's going to make you much more valuable to the learner. And as we've been saying too, therefore much more valuable in terms of the role that you're able to play in society more broadly. Yeah, that really, to me, feels like the biggest opportunity for anybody who's listening to this podcast who is, you know, involved in the, the learning business is to, you know, to, to be that guide, to be that ally through whatever portion of that lifelong learning journey that you're helping your particular stakeholders with. If they're looking to you as that, you know, as that guide, as that ally, facilitator, curator, you know, whatever terms you want to use for it. But as you said, you're helping them make sense. You're helping get rid of that fragmentation that characterizes what life experience is, what professional experience is for so many people these days. If you're doing that as a learning business, you're going to have tremendous success. Lifelong learning drives learning businesses. Taking the time to consider what lifelong learning is and what it can be is an illuminating exercise in better understanding why your learning business does what it does and the broad human goals that it supports. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 359, you'll find show notes, a full transcript, and links to some of the resources we referenced in this episode. You'll also find options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please do subscribe as subscription numbers give us some visibility into the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. Jeff and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one note or conversation with a colleague, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 359, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.